Welcome to Upholding Matters, a podcast devoted to talking about what matters. Now, I was raised to believe that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were things that mattered. And certainly they are the unalienable rights that Jefferson wrote about in the Declaration of Independence. We will talk about how to uphold them, how they hold us up, and why that matters. Welcome to Upholding Matters. This is David Paul, and I am so glad that you tuned in for our second show. Tonight I want to start with a story that is really a great joy to me. I was recently honored at a newly formed commission meeting by the chair of the commission to give the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, this commission is a long time in coming, a collaborative effort by more than just the city that sponsors it. It is called the Lancaster Homeless Impact Commission. And the chair is Donna Termeer. She is the executive assistant to our local supervisor, Catherine Barger, who is, if you don't understand the system, an important person in the county for all your needs that the city can't provide. There are rural areas where the county has jurisdiction and It's a complex relationship between the city, the county, and the state, as I'm sure it is wherever you go. But we here in Lancaster are in a Southern California place where, while the weather here, especially year-round, is not perfect, it is more convenient to be homeless in California, it seems, than any other place. So it's a big deal. It's a big issue, and nothing really speaks to upholding American values more than this issue of how do we take care of people, or better said, how how do we find it in ourselves to leave people sleeping on the street in America? So this is certainly nothing new, but it's a problem that is not getting better, and many people suffer because we don't do a good enough job of bringing together all the pieces that will actually help. So what happened was that L.A. County came up with a ballot measure H, which was a sales tax to help fund the measure and fund the new revitalized homeless effort. So then a bunch of people got together to scope things out. Time went by and the city of Lancaster has put this commission together with the county, the Salvation Army, the Sheriff's Department, and a bunch of other local representatives who have some knowledge of these things and really want to help. So we're working at it. And it was just gratifying to be part of the process. The first meeting is always exciting. The high hopes of what are we going to be able to accomplish for people. 
And then sometimes the reality of it's all about squabbling, fighting, dividing, and protecting the money and the interests that help certain people keep hold of that money. I hope that doesn't sound dark or nefarious or evil, because by way of example, on this new commission is a gentleman, Hector Acosta, from the Salvation Army, and they are operating, in conjunction with the county and the city, a shelter that used to be a vacant hospital, and they're doing it quite successfully, and everyone is pleased. So, I do believe that they should want to fight for continued funding and involvement, feeling they do a great job and maybe better than anyone can or has. So those kinds of things are worth fighting for. And I would also hope that people who are fighting to do good work would feel that they're capable of succeeding at it. Of course, Salvation Army has been doing that for quite a long while. So we want to fight for what's right and always examine how we can do better. Just yesterday, in our local paper, the Antelope Valley Press, the columnist Bill Warford wrote an article basically asking the question of, what do we do? When is enough enough? He cited examples of uh, recently a homeless man stabbed for no reason, another man to death in a restaurant while he was holding his baby. It was unprovoked and totally undefendable. He just walked up and stabbed him. It also cites examples of pedestrian walkways that were meant for bike riding and walking and jogging that are now overrun with homeless and the byproducts of their living there, defecation on the street and other things. It also talks about stream beds where people crash and camp and how they're now polluting the ecosystem and affecting places where fish hatch and grow and just messing things up generally. So what do we do? This is the big question. What do we do? Welcome back. And what a catchy song that is. What have you done for me? It takes you back, especially when thinking about how to uphold the best parts of America to when I was a boy. And since I was going to talk about this, I thought a little bit about why things were the way they were. I was six years old when I heard the inauguration of John F. Kennedy. And that's when he gave the famous quote, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And those were exciting times, even for a boy. I, I had lived in a neighborhood 
that had uh, a large Catholic, Irish Catholic family uh, to one side of me and to the other and behind me. And the one behind me was the uh, sister of the one that was on the one side. So these were huge families, uh, eight, nine children. And I can remember that there was a lot of excitement during the 1960 presidential election. And for a kid, I haven't seen that much excitement in people, even in the circles I traveled, which probably had a lot to do with it uh, when I was a kid. But for the election, you know, people were genuinely excited that they had a candidate that they resonated with or appealed to them, whatever that magic JFK had. I remember that. And as I look back, I remembered that in that speech, and one of the first things he says as he opens is that we have it within our power to abolish all forms of human poverty or human life. And that's to my point. What can we do? Well, certainly we've done neither of those, and there may be some good in that because at least we didn't pick the wrong one. And JFK, of course, had a lot to do with saving our world at the point of the biggest challenge we've ever faced with nuclear weapons. Thank goodness that's such a long time ago. But I certainly was raised with a certain patriotism and a love of America's future. And then as a young man, the space race, and they were very exciting times. So upon reflection, it seems that that early patriotism helped me get through the next period. I can remember the early 70s and the Who, their song Won't Get Fooled Again. The line was, we'll be fighting in the streets with the children at our feet and the morals that we worship will be gone. Now, I always took that almost literally. I believe that certain things were unsustainable, that people would not take it much longer. These were revolutionary times, and people that predicted the future that I knew, unless they were in technology, weren't optimistic. So it's that need to be resilient, to see resiliency in action, that makes me happy for America because it seems that no matter how much harm there is from errors that we make on ourselves, that we withstand and grow and uphold things that the world needs to see, a country that works, democracy in action despite its flaws, and really a beacon of hope, even for me. I was part of this young generation that uh, it's very exciting. I have two teenage boys that are the same age as I was 
we just watched a movie, The Post, uh, about the Pentagon Papers and how uh, Americans were deceived for reasons that serving public officials took cover in, uh, stopped the spread of these ideologies. And these are all true things. But if you're going to lose over 50,000 American lives in a beachhead of preventing something that they really knew couldn't be prevented, especially there, then you have to wonder, have we met a balance between compassion and practicality? Uh, The men that made those decisions probably thought they were practical. And I know that it deals with the presidents that went through the Vietnam War and how they just kind of went along and didn't want to be the president that lost the war. So all these things are gratifying if you understand that they point to the resiliency of America. That, that's kind of how I look at it. But why can't we help homeless people? Why do more people suffer economic calamity or however these things come up? One medical bill can put you on the streets. How is that possible in America? And it seems even more perplexing when you consider the problems with the VA and a lot of the homeless are veterans who have served and should never be in that position. So what is it? Is this the best America can do for our veterans? I had a great conversation the other day with a friend who is the chairman of the planning commission for the city and we were talking about my crazy idea that what if you just took all the money 185 billion dollars a year that's spent on the VA and just give it to the living veterans and let them split it and his comment which was very insightful was yeah you'd only have to do that once and then that budget would be free for other things so It's kind of incredible. We want to claim we support and revere and uphold our veterans. But in the final analysis, despite all the efforts, there's not a really good showing for success. So I come back to the idea that is this the best we can do? Surely we can do better. I watched a piece in the news quickly It was about England, and there they pay, Germany as well, the Europeans are a little ahead of us on this, but they pay young men that are in street gangs not to commit crimes. Now, what is that? Well, it's better, or I should say better for everyone and less expensive than putting them in prison and creating generations of angry men who have really not gotten fair treatment. And 
They teach them to be productive members of the tax base, have great jobs that support them in the trades, plumbers, electricians. We do some of that here. I've been to some of these meetings where we actually promote that kind of thing. You know, young men in the trades, not necessarily taking people who are at risk to be in gangs and putting them in trades, but there is some effort to get people jobs. Now, conversely, just last week, a good friend of mine visited from Northern California. We're all back from the Midwest in the old days and kind of wound up here in California together. And he's not needing a job. He's facing retirement. And this is a man who's worked very hard all his life and wants to be able to retire and stay solvent. So he's spending a lot more time wondering about the economy, asking people what they think. And it's like a... Well, you know, I've known this man for 50 years, and he's never been that concerned about economics, and that's like most people, you know, who has the ability to pay attention to all of it. I remember remember the financial crisis, and uh, the experts were all saying that Hank Paulson, who became the Treasury Secretary, Goldman Sachs guy, he said, nobody understands it all. So that was a breath of fresh honesty that I did appreciate because it's really complex, our money system and how it all works. And basically, it's a, to me, a scheme, if you will, where everybody has to agree because there is no golden vaults that backs up our currency. And after the financial crisis and the misdealings by the banks and we bailed them out, central banks with the government put out trillions of dollars, Americans almost four trillion, Japan almost three trillion. We pumped this money into the economy and in actuality, it was just printed, invented but they'll tell you that it was an asset buying program, um, long-term treasuries and mortgage-backed securities were purchased with this money. It's very confusing, but I'm not sure it lasts forever or can, the solvency of it all, but we're resilient. We're Americans. We have a lot of problems. And we have to face them together and be educated. The financial calamities may be the consequence of environmental problems. There are many things that pose grave risk to us as, as human beings. So... That's why upholding America becomes more important than ever. When all else fails, we are Americans.
As I wrap up this second podcast, I thought perhaps some context would be helpful. I've lived in California for almost 20 years. But before that, I'm from Chicago. I was born, I was raised there, and all my formative experiences happened there. So it seems that there was a great deal of excitement, according to the reports I got from friends, about Barack Obama being sort of a hometown son and a political hopeful that really got people excited. I'm sorry I missed that. I liked Barack Obama. I felt an affinity for him. And I was saddened that there was so much opposition to him considering the situation we were in, one that he inherited from mistakes of previous administrations. After all, loving America means you want your president to succeed. We want our president to succeed. But we also want him to uphold the law and uphold American values. Next week, we can dig a little deeper into this process of how to appreciate the presidency and yet find fault with some of the behavior of our current president. So to tease up that discussion, for context's sake, I want to share a little bit about where I'm coming from. Now, I live in a town that is in Southern California, Northern LA County, and you think of California as a blue state pretty much, but this is a Republican, a red stronghold, and things are different, and that's as far as I'll go into that for now. I attend a lot of public meetings, especially the city council meetings. It's very important to stay informed about what's going on. Well, we have a sheriff's deputy, and he serves as a sergeant of arms for the council meetings. And through the years, I've known several of these fine men who give their time to keep the peace in the public setting so the people's business can go on. And I admire that. There are a lot of differences of opinion, certainly, and a lot of Republicanism. I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I think of myself as an independent, certainly an independent thinker. I make up my own mind. And I know that party allegiance can sometimes lead people to do things that they might not ordinarily do if they were just doing them out of their own conscience. So this is the upholding, uplifting story. And I learned from this deputy, Sergeant of Arms, uh, this lesson, and I thank him for that. I have a longtime friend in the neighborhood I live in. Uh, a young man grew up. He was a fierce, tough young guy. And he went on, and he's now an active-duty Navy SEAL. So I've known him for a long time, and part of the duties of the SEALs are to guard the president sometimes. You know, people don't realize how well protected the president of the United States actually is. But it's 
these are not secrets. I have a picture that the president allowed of the team with him on his basketball court. And he let him each was next to him along with the team. And my friend is there standing next to the president after playing basketball with him. And I proud of this picture. And I showed it to my deputy friend because we've talked about a lot of things, patriotism, the military, police service, how people feel, you know, he's, we've talked. So I shared this with him to show. And I said to him, I don't know if, you know, how you feel about this president, but I think this picture is pretty cool. I've told him about my friend before. And he just looked back at me and he said, he is the president, isn't he? So I want to work that up. The presidency must be respected. It must be upheld. And we must understand what's going on. I love this country. I want to see it endure. And I want to see us all get together and get along. 